Welcome to Girls That Invest, the platform to help you learn about all things investing and personal finance. You're joined today by Sonia and a very special guest, James Chu, who is the Chief Investment Officer, Southeast Asia, HSBC, Global, Private Banking and Wealth. Before we get into the show, a huge thank you to HSBC for powering this week's episode. 80% of money media tell women to spend less and make them feel bad about money, yet more than 67% of women want to learn about their finances and grow their wealth. We are so proud to be partnering with HSBC as they pave the way for financial well-being and diversity, which aligns with our mission of empowering women. An integral part of HSBC's mission is to empower and support each customer with their unique wealth needs, whenever and wherever they are. So whether you're at the very beginning of your wealth creation phase and taking your first steps in investing, or you're starting to think about passing your wealth and values to the next generation, HSBC can connect you to global opportunities at every stage of your wealth journey. Jump onto the link in the description to find out more. All right, back to the show. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you so much for joining us today. Before I get too excited and we jump into all of our topics, do you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and you know what exactly a chief investment officer does? And I'm the chief investment officer for HSBC uh, Global Private Banking Well for Southeast Asia. So essentially what I do, it's very much like I'm a little boy climbing up the mask of a ship, trying to look for dangers and opportunities uh, from an investment perspective. That's a great analogy that you've used to describe your role. I did want to ask you, how did you decide that you wanted to be a chief investment officer? You know, how does one get on the same path if they're interested? Well, when I left school uh, or when I was studying, I, I had no idea of what I wanted to do. And of course, clearly, I, I don't have in mind that I will be the chief investment officer of HSBC private banking. I don't have that sort of kind of an idea that that's where I want to be. Uh, but clearly, I think very much, even as I was growing up, when I was studying, there is a very strong interest deep within me about investments and also about economics. And I can remember even when I was in school during the great Asian financial crisis back in 97 and 98, in which I saw how a currency depreciation can ripple through financial markets across Asia, bringing down economies, big economies on their knees. And as a result, creating a huge amounts of social upheaval, people losing their jobs, governments were being changed. Uh, toppled in some of the countries that I am in. So that kind of sparked uh, a respect for economics, for how uh, markets work. But also, I think it started my journey to try to understand financial crisis better. When I graduated, I started to work with the central bank, the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And I I was an economist there. I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time to to learn about financial crisis, to build a mathematical models to try to understand how financial prices work, the contagion of it, and learned on certain uh, techniques such as stress testing of the financial systems and of the banking system. Amazing. I love that. And I think those experiences when you hear from your friends and through your own eyes, when you reflect, this is how I viewed finances growing up. It 
adds a layer of empathy to the technicality of your role because you know that these crises can affect people in a much deeper way. And sometimes that can get lost in like our day-to-day, like back-to-back meetings. So I think that's amazing that you took those experiences and your curiosity and you look at you now in the role that you're in. I did want to take a moment to reflect on the past a little bit because I think it is important to understand that our perspective on wealth it does change over time. What was your relationship like with money when you were growing up? And how do you think that changed over time? Yeah, well, I remember growing up, even when I was fairly young, it was probably around 15 years old or so. During that time, there was also very much a a euphoria around the property market, like what's happening now. And and that euphoria was, was huge. And there were you know, new developments that was sprouting out all over Singapore at the time. And what my parents told me was to, you know, queue up along those condo lines. Uh, people are queuing up to, to kind of get a, a number to purchase it and buy a condominium. So you might not be a real buyer whatsoever, but you just join the queue. And, and at 15 years old, you know, my parents asked me to join the queue. <laughs> uh, yeah, so a small boy well, just queuing. And, and there were people queuing overnight uh, for it. So I, I joined that queue. I was quite early into it, but it was under really hot sun, sweaty, and I queued for hours. And and the queue built up very, very long. And that was a very strong lesson for me was that someone uh, at the back of the queue started to approach me and ask me to swap places in exchange for $10,000. And that's a huge amount of money uh, for a 15-year-old. And that really kind of showed me that as in how the buildup of uh, euphoria in the economy, in financial markets, in property market could actually reach such extreme levels. And I think that's something that kind of stick with me that as much as when you look at crisis, but before a crisis happens, there's always euphoria. There's always a huge amount of people rushing for certain uh, financial assets. There's always an uh, increase in debt as a result. And people would pay astronomical amounts just to chase after certain things that they want. And I think that mm. that really kind of uh, sparked my interest in finance and how uh, actually um, money, a human construct, can actually be so intriguing, uh, especially when you, when you think about how it's not just pure mechanics of economics. There is also a lot of element of investor psychology, behavioral uh, biasness, uh, especially when Mm. we we look at how it builds up to to such a euphoria in the markets. Yeah. I think those experiences when you are a teenager and your parents made you stand in that line, do you think back to those moments a lot in like your day-to-day and and reflect on that? Yes. I think what's also important is that you have to kind of, when it comes to investing and in my day-to-day job, uh, what I also notice is that you do see a lot of similar behavioral biasness uh, when it comes to investing. And typically what you see is, is two folks. Either investors take on too much risk or they took, take on too little risk. And really when people take on too much risk, it's usually a result of the fear of missing out, FOMO, as you like. When I was made to stand in the queue, it was very much a formal happening where everyone was queuing. They might not have the whether is that uh, property suitable for them? Should are they able to buy it or not? 
that's besides the point, but they are joining the queue, wanting to have a kind of a slice of their property market, really because of the fear of missing out. And I think that sometimes can be quite dangerous because the people tend to take on a risk that they are not suited to have. Uh, they could take on big speculative positions. And most of the time, it's really by hearsay, someone else is doing it or someone is giving their advice or, or they actually look or they see it on social media in which uh, friends making a lot of money in this particular market. And that point of motivation it's, it's something that's probably uh, not correct. And day to day, I think I, I see a lot of that sort of behavior. And of course, uh, as with that property market story, uh, as much as there is euphoria, as with all booms, it always ends with a bust. And so there will be people that will be left losing uh, huge amounts of uh, money just because the lack of understanding, just because there isn't a formal approach when it comes to investing. Mm -hmm. So I think... It's very important. It's shaped uh, why I think that there is purpose in what I do in helping investors think about investments in a more structured and disciplined way so as to remove elements of them either taking on too much risk or for, for some people not taking any risk. So I think it's, it's kind of drawing that balance and, and trying to kind of come up with a strategy that's suited for everyone. I'm really glad that you mentioned that because that kind of answers the question that I had next in terms of what do you think are common mistakes um, investors make during these cycles? Because it leads us to current times. You know, 2022, we saw a pretty challenging year with sticky inflation, rising interest rates, slow economic growth, and all of those factors, they drove market volatility. Moving into 2023, we do see some of those silver linings. My question for you is, what do you think are the opportunities now? Like, are there any specific opportunities for first-time investors during this time? Yeah, well, I think to take a step back uh, before I, I give a view of 2023, probably I'll just share some investment principles so as to kind of take away that sort of investor biasness or, or, or investors uh, making wrong decisions. Well, essentially to invest successfully, uh, taking, of course, investments has its risk. It's essentially three levers. The first lever is uh, about stock selection. You pick the right stocks. That's mm. the first lever. The second lever is actually uh, timing the market, market timing. So you typically, you hope to buy at the lowest of the low and you sell at the highest of the high. So that's the second lever. The third lever is actually asset allocation, which is thinking beforehand how much you want to allocate to a certain asset class that suits and ultimately taking on the right amount of risk that suits your life cycle, that suits your, your objectives. The fact of the matter is that the first two levers, stock selection and market timing, is very hard to achieve, even for professionals. Most investors or most people that try to invest make mistakes thinking that they are very good stock pickers or very good uh, at timing the market. Uh, but, but most of the time, the track record shows that most people can't do those two very well. But I think what everyone can do well is actually asset allocation. It is something that you, you strategically think about how you want to carve out investments in certain asset classes. And I think that's something that everyone can do. And once you build that plan out, uh, you could slowly build out a, a diversified kind of a portfolio over time. 
And I think that approach is much more sustainable, much more uh, impactful for building wealth in the long haul. Uh, sure enough, it will not give you that multi-bagger uh, in a year, but I think it's something that helps you think about investments and help you uh, build your wealth uh, over time. Yeah, I feel like people just need to hear it in those three levels as well, because often we're given so much advice, even our listeners, you know, hearing those three points and what you can actually do and focus on, I feel like that would be really comforting to hear. Now, you are very active on LinkedIn and I love it. I follow you. And for those listening, I definitely recommend following James on LinkedIn as well. But I did want to dive into a few things that you mentioned in one of your recent LinkedIn posts about seeing triple peaks in 2023. Now, a triple peak you mentioned was extreme market pessimism. What does that mean? And how do you think that impacts the market? Yeah, well, Sonia, thanks for that question. And I, I can, since you mentioned about the triple peaks that I talked about, and I think that segues very well into how I think about financial markets for 2023. Well, clearly, I think what I mean by the key drivers for 2022 was that there was inflation, and inflation was very high and kind of getting out of control, and central banks had to raise interest rates very, very fast. So, and then as a result, what happened in 2022 was that there was a repricing of asset prices across the board because whether you think about equities, bonds, or any other financial assets are all cash flows, future cash flows discounted to the present value. And what's being used to discount all these future cash flows is actually interest rates. So if you do get higher interest rates, uh, all these cash flows have to be discounted and the value of financial assets have to be repriced lower as a result of higher interest rates. So that's mm -hmm. essentially how why bonds, equities, everything went south as a result in 2022. What I mean by the triple peaks that's happening towards the end of 2022 and into 2023 is that number one, we are seeing or already experiencing the peaking of inflation. So that's good news. Uh, supply bottlenecks are now becoming less of an issue and goods inflation is falling down. But bear in mind that it's still inflation, especially when it comes to wage inflation, rentals are still going to be fairly sticky. But nevertheless, I think uh, we are past the highest point when it comes to inflation. So that's good news, which means that central banks, we are also reaching the peak of high interest rates in which central banks are still likely to be at the end of their tightening cycle. They will still increase interest rates, but probably at a smaller magnitude. And, and thereafter, they will probably hold interest rates where they are. So that's also good news for financial markets. And perhaps sometime down the road next year, they might start to think about cutting interest rates. So those are the peaking of inflation, the peaking of interest rates, but also the peaking of extreme market pessimism. I think that happened uh, last year. And, uh, and of course, during that time, everyone was thinking about, is this uh, going to be a big financial collapse? Will there be a financial crisis again? Will the world enter into a big recession? Uh, but I think this year, what we are seeing is that there are signs that we might not even be in a, a global recession. Because even when you look at last year, the economy globally is actually fairly resilient. 
most major economies mm. such as the United States did, did not even enter in a recession. Uh, in fact, it was quite a resilient growth in 2022. There are pockets of weaknesses in Europe, UK, etc. But nevertheless, growth is still fairly resilient. But make no mistake, this year, we are still seeing a slowdown in, in global growth. But there are pockets of strength, especially uh, in places like Asia, where we have China's reopening, which would actually boister growth for very much China as well as Asia. And so there are also bright spots. So I think that extreme pessimism is also has already peaked, and, and we should see investor sentiment start to uh, improve in 2023. For business owners, every transaction is more than just a swipe of the card. It's the culmination of your hard work, dedication and commitment to your customers. That's why I'm excited to share with you a game-changing solution that's simplifying the way businesses like yours accept payments. Introducing Tap to Pay on iPhone, powered by Stripe. Contactless payments has never been easier. You can seamlessly accept contactless payments directly from your iPhone. And the best part, there's no additional hardware required. Think about it. From local pop-ups to global retailers, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe cater to businesses of all sizes, empowering them to accept payments right from their iPhones. It's a game changer for businesses looking to scale quickly and stay flexible with quick setup that takes minutes, not days. So how can tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe benefit your business? It's simple. Increased revenue, expanded reach and enhanced customer experience. It's a win-win-win. To learn more about how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can transform your business, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone today. And because of the combination of those factors that I've talked about in 2022, what happened was that the repricing of assets would make entering into the markets right now, especially if you want to construct a new investment portfolio, whether it's in bonds or equities or in various other asset classes, one is actually in a very good kind of attractive position to think about constructing portfolios really because of that repricing that has occurred. And if you think about the bond markets, for example, uh, you can lock in very good yields never seen before in decades, really because of the high interest rates. And I think there's a good opportunity right now for, for your listeners, for investors who are new to investing to start to do their own research, think about how they want to construct their portfolio because I think this year is a good time to start thinking about their financial plan because right now, finally, after uh, many decades, you have finally have a chance to experience uh, an environment in which there is a price to money. And, and I think that's very important in, in terms of constructing portfolio. It's actually easier in that sense to get mm. a certain yield from your investment portfolio this year onwards. Yeah. It's such an optimistic view of 2023. I love this idea of triple peaks. Throwing you a curveball question here, but how do you think investors can kind of manage the news that they see that might be a little bit more negative and see things as an opportunity? Do you have any tips in terms of how to manage yeah. the emotion? Yeah, well, I, I think I would have to go back into the three levers that I talked about. And I think the most important lever is actually asset allocation. So I think that's mm. how I think your listeners should think about building up their portfolios. And, and I will categorize asset allocation in simple terms in perhaps three buckets. So I think the first bucket you want to build is something that is safe, something that uh, you, you could invest in and you can sleep at night. It gives you a, an income. 
So typically, I would say this is a safe and secure basket that you want to build. Typically, these will be things like bonds, money market funds, cash deposits, fixed deposits, etc. So that's something that's very safe. You want to build that up as well. The next bucket that one have to think about would be, I would say, a growth bucket that, that has to have equities. And then of course, you know, equity market is volatile. They can, uh, even if you buy the, the market as a whole in an index, it could fall as much as 20% or more. But of course, the upside is also fairly great. So that's the equity bucket. And the third bucket, I would say, it's probably something for the long term. So it could be, and, and it's something that's illiquid because you can't sell the next day or immediately. Typically, things like real estate, the home that they are in, that they want to buy, or even something, their new business that they are starting out. So those are illiquid, the long-term kind of portfolio. So for everyone, the proportion on these three buckets are different given mm. where they are in their life cycle, their career or their life ambition is different. Of course, for someone who is uh, starting out their business, I would say perhaps most of their money will be in the long-term bucket. But of course, mm. for someone who is starting in a career, their jobs or, or some career which is maybe a bit more stable and they're younger, they might want to have a little bit more in the growth bucket, for example. So I think it, it varies for everyone and there's no one-size-fits-all. So I think what's very important is for someone starting out to think about how much they want to allocate to each bucket. And I think that's very important. And once you decide on that proportion, you want to build that up over the years. So when you get from someone in their jobs, when they get a bonus of a certain amount, they want to allocate to their various buckets each time or even whatever salaries that they get each month, they want to set aside an amount that they want to save into the various buckets. So I think that's very important in how uh, one should frame and think about opportunities and how they should build up their financial wealth over the long haul. I really love that advice because you've broken it down into very actionable steps. And it's a good reminder to all of those that are listening that personal finance is very personal and you have to reflect on the stage of life that you're in and what your risk assessment is for yourself rather than just following what's out there. HSBC, you know, they have released four key themes to guide investors in positioning their portfolio to make the most out of 2023. Do you mind diving into that a bit more for us? Yeah, well, I think what's also very important is that the teams have to be interpreted in the context of a portfolio. So again, mm -hmm. I think very importantly, as much as I've talked about those buckets, and those are the foundations. So once you build a kind of a diversified portfolio, uh, you want to think about ideas about uh, the longer term teams that you want to be invested in. But also, I think increasingly, I think an investor also should think about when they construct or when they build up, uh, when they buy, build up equity positions, or when they build up bond positions, they want to think about teams along putting an ESG uh, kind of overlay in the sense that they want to find companies that score highly on, on, on ESG scores, environmental, social, and governance factor. Because uh, what we found is that we want to, that over the long haul, companies that do well on, on ESG scores tend to have lower kind of a risk mm. because they have less likelihood of being in a, a having reputation issues or they have less likelihood of having 
labor rights issue or, or even affecting the environment. So I, I think these are a kind of a good kind of a hygiene factor to look at when they build out their portfolios. So that would increase the resilience of their core portfolio, as how we call it. But of course, there are themes that investors uh, can look out for in the long term. And I think clearly, um, the, some of the main themes that, that will play out clearly is that the economic gravity will shift to Asia. So I think Asia is kind of making itself. So especially for investors who are very much uh, having a, a home bias, perhaps in the developed economies in, in the US or in Europe, and, and typically what we see is that usually investors invest a lot in where they grew up in, in the markets that they're comfortable in. It's actually much more optimal if an investor builds a portfolio that is globally diversified. So I think from that perspective, it's also important to look at the opportunity sets that Asia provides. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think that's one theme that we like because we are seeing that Asia is kind of remaking itself in many dimensions, whether it's along the dimensions of China's reopening, for example, whether it's in the dimensions of Southeast Asia, where I am at, on how Southeast Asia is rejuvenating itself. And of course, there is also a, a green transformation that's occurring in Asia. So these are the few dimensions that investors can think about Asia as it, it remakes itself. But I think also what's also important, it's really about the sustainability angle as you create a, a sort of a core portfolio that is that has integrated ESG factors into it. There are mm. longer term teams from a sustainability point of view that actually creates quite a lot of opportunities, whether you think about energy transition that's going to happen in a big way whether you think about a smart city solution, which can actually make the entire running of cities and urban centers much more efficient, lower cost, captures carbon much better, reduces carbon emission, or even agriculture that's going to be much more sustainable. So these are the long-term themes that investors can consider from a thematic point of view. But I would say that in terms of progression and how you invest, I think what's important is not to especially for a new investors, not to chase after some of these teams, but to go back to the fundamentals first. Uh, and, and that's mm. why I, I think the asset location is really very important in that they have to build the, the various buckets that I, I talked about first before they, they embark on thinking about the longer-term investment teams. Because what's important is that once you construct and, and have a very stable or a, a good asset allocation strategy, then you want to kind of take a step further to find longer-term uh, returns, and then you, you think about thematic investing. Yeah, definitely. I think what I love is that sustainability and those ESG factors that you spoke about, they've become such a norm, especially for first-time investors. I feel like we're finding that these new generations coming into investing, they really care about where they're putting their money and what the asset allocation looks like. Throwing you another curveball here. <laughs> Stepping away from the questions, do you think there's a risk for people to stay in that like research analysis area before they invest? Yeah, well, well, I think what's very important is for, in fact, why people make suboptimal investment decisions is really first. I would say is the lack of understanding or the lack of knowledge, and I think that's why I, I would encourage all your listeners to really. Do your research when it comes to investing on all dimensions, whether it's constructing 
your own uh, asset allocation strategy, or even how do you integrate uh, ESG factors into your investments. So I, I think you have to do your own fact-finding, your own research. Of course, there are good sources of information. I, I would recommend, I think, your podcast. I think this is a good source <laughs> of uh, information to kind of learn about uh, investing in a great uh, platform. So I, I think you have to kind of make your own research, learn about it. And ultimately, I think what's also very important is to essentially, once you understand it, you have a plan to kind of implement it. In many ways, even when you have a plan, it's not going to be perfect at the start. Uh, you have to make uh, tweaks along the way mm. as you learn more information because it takes time to kind of digest a lot of the information and to understand it. So I think we have to kind of, it's sort of a, a journey. You, you kind of learn along the way and you make adjustments. And I, I think that's very important uh, when it comes to thinking about how do you construct uh, portfolios or even integrating uh, ESG into your investing? Because all these, are, I would say, as, as I've mentioned, uh, there are a few levers to investing. Security selection, market timing, these two are actually very, very complicated and it's difficult to achieve consistent success on it. Yeah. But asset allocation, everyone can do. So I think everyone should start on thinking about how you have the various buckets in your investments. And then thereafter, I think uh, the next step probably is once you have done that, you are comfortable with it and you are getting some uh, kind of uh, results on it over time, then you slowly progress to the next uh, kind of stage where you start to consider adding other factors into it. Amazing. We do have a little bit of time for some quick fire questions for James. We'll put him on the spot. So firstly, do you have a favorite personal finance book that you can recommend our viewers? Well, I think I would say The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. So uh, that was a book that I, I, I read uh, when I was 19 years old. It's not easy reading for a 19-year-old, but I think it kind of sets kind of the fundamentals uh, when it comes to security selection. Uh, and, and it's not that simple. Uh, so I, I, I think it, it gives you an appreciation of um, the, the amount of knowledge you need to know when it comes to uh, picking stocks. So, so that's a book I would encourage uh, one to start rather than um, you know hear someone give you a certain advice and, and you don't do your homework. So I think it's important to do your yeah. homework. So, so start with that book if, if you want. Yeah, I definitely recommend it as well. It is a little bit heavy. <laughs> so you do need to be patient and you need to be very focused when you're reading The Intelligent Investor. But that is a classic recommendation. Moving on to the next quick fire question, has there been any advice that you've received that's been your favorite piece of advice that you could give to others? Oh, uh, well, I think as a location is the key. And I think that's very important to start building an as a location plan when you're young. The earlier you start, uh, the better outcome you, you will get. And, and really you want to kind of have a diversified portfolio and let that portfolio grow over time. And, and really the, the thing about investing is it's about letting the investment grow, that the compounding interest uh, that you could get built on itself over time. And really that's the magic of investing. It's really about asset location. It's about building a portfolio that suits you and let it grow and let the power of compounding interest uh, work to your favor uh, over the long haul. So 
that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to James for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. I'm sure that all of our listeners are furiously writing notes with all the gems that James provided today. If you are curious to follow along on James's journey, he is on LinkedIn. And as I mentioned, he's very active on LinkedIn. We'll be sure to leave it in the show notes as well if you are curious and want yeah, more of a direct reach. Well, thank you so much again. It's been an absolute pleasure having you you on the podcast and I'm sure we'll see you again in future episodes hopefully soon so thank you again James pleasure is my great conversation with you Sonia looking forward Absolutely. to the <laughs> thank you before we go, thank you again to HSBC for not only powering this episode, but for the rest of the season. Don't forget to check out the link in the description to find out more. And as always, to finish off with our disclaimer, Girls That Invest does not provide personalized investing advice for your individual needs. We are not financial advisors. The advice from Girls That Invest exists for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon to make an investment or financial decision. Advice from Girls That Invest is general in nature and does not consider individual circumstances. Always do your research and please use your due diligence.